from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Sometimes I wonder why, what's wrong with the bus? We know in the U.S. it's not done well. I would hate to see a focus on light rail come at the expense of really improving bus service. Um, I'm strongly in favor of a, a north-south Metrolink line. I, I think it's really the only way to keep St. Louis as like a relevant metropolitan area. My objection to Metrolink is you need an automobile to get to the Metrolink station. Mm-hmm. We look at rail because it's flashy and tangible. And many rail expansions have tended to benefit white affluent commuters. I'm Sarah Fenske. St. Louis is again publicly mulling something it hasn't really talked about in years. A new Metrolink line running north-south through the heart of the city and into St. Louis County. Voters approved a small sales tax increase for north-south Metrolink expansion back in 2017. Oddly enough, it came as part of a failed effort to get city voters to approve public funding for a soccer stadium. Voters said no to the stadium and yes to Metrolink. Now that tax revenue has grown to $41 million, and Mayor Tashara Jones believes the city could get much more money from the federal government. Could this finally be a chance to expand light rail 15 years after the last segment was completed? But even some public transit enthusiasts aren't sure. Richard Bowes is a St. Louis resident and a transit user. He's also editor of the local urban planning site NextSTL.com, and he neatly encapsulates the conundrum. What, what's been uh, a little disconcerting, I mean, sure, there's all this excitement, and I, I tell you, every seems like every thread on Urban STL either goes to talking about Metrolink or Trader Joe's somehow. But at the same time this is happening, our bus system is disintegrating. It's in crisis. So we can do two things at once, of course. But, um, you know, plan long-term, and but we have an immediate transportation crisis at the worst time gas prices and car prices are skyrocketing and people are struggling to pay for that and 400,000 people in the St. Louis area are worried about paying for food well transportation crowds out purchases for food so we need a real focus on transportation choices that are practical that are cheaper and safer than driving there's a lot the possibilities there beyond a Metrolink line that'll open in eight to 10 years. Now, a lot of people who don't depend on public transit love the idea of light rail, but is it the best option for those who do? Richard Bowes believes it's important to look closely at return on investment for light rail expansion. The bus, he notes, has some real advantages. The bus is more, pers- it's more, because uh, it's at the end of your block. It's not couple blocks away down into the station. It's, it's at your street corner. And Richard Bowes notes that he used to have great bus service from his home in the Skinker de Bolivar neighborhood. He got used to catching a bus every 15 minutes. I could watch where the buses were on the real-time bus tracker and knew when to leave my office to catch it. It was great. Okay, so what's happened since then? The frequency went down to 20 minutes, then 30, now it's an hour. And then wash you, but that that freaking parking garage out front here 
And so the route had to go out to Skinker and Forsyth. So it's just impractical. So I, I walk to work now. And while those factors are unique, Richard Bose's situation isn't. Bi-State Development, which runs both Metrolink and St. Louis area bus service, recently slashed bus routes, citing a lack of operators. Ridership is also down considerably since the beginning of the pandemic. Brian Taylor is a professor of urban planning and public policy at UCLA and also the director of UCLA's Institute for Transportation Studies. He notes that there are essentially two markets for transit today, people traveling to places where parking is difficult or expensive, and people who, because of age, income, or ability, aren't able to drive. The former is the the downtown commuter, the people traveling to a university or uh, an airport, something like that. Uh, And and the latter are are people who are generally low income, more likely people of color, immigrants, who are relying on public transit for all manner of, of travel. So that that second group is larger than the first group nationwide. So the smaller the city you're in, that the more that ratio skews toward people who, because of age, income, or ability, can't drive. So that the transit in the smallest cities is almost exclusively those people, in part because you can drive and park almost everywhere in small cities. Now there are a few people who are making sort of a uh, a moral or environmental you know, uh, commitment, that's a relatively small share. It's really these two groups. The downtown commuters vanished in the, in the pandemic. And so what happened is transit ridership went down a lot, and the, the demographic socioeconomic composition of those who are on transit skewed much more toward disadvantaged populations, right? Because they were always riding, but now they were the only ones riding. And Brian Taylor described to us what he calls the political economy of transit. For elected officials, he said, opportunities to cut ribbons in front of things is much better than making broad improvements. The new airport terminal, new sports stadium, a new light rail line, those are dramatic, concrete, you know, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, improvements that people can see and say, okay, these people are in office, they cut a ribbon in front of that, NPR, uh, you know, and the local paper all covered it, and so that's a thing. And so, in general, there is a capital bias in public works broadly and public transit in particular. So we have a tendency to kind of think about steel and concrete when a variety of operations will, will do. Now, as one example, Brian Taylor noted that frequent, reliable bus service has a huge impact on ridership, but it doesn't necessarily help politicians' hopes of re-election. What does a public official point to? Well, we've got better on-time service. The buses ran more frequently. That's harder to see. And the issue with, with a light rail line is that most people don't ride transit, but almost everyone can see the light rail line. Only the transit users notice that the service has gotten more reliable. And since you're elected not just by transit users, you're elected by sort of all voters, something that has that, that kind of visualization of, of being a manifestation of an improvement of transit, that's going to get uh, more political support. So for all those reasons, we tend to kind of identify uh, these investments as rail as, as, as really important. What I can tell you is that uh, it, it's really what kind of service is offered. Now, you know, rail can be very attractive in the right situation. It can be a good investment. I'm not trying to, to dump on rail, but we, 
we talk a lot about steel wheels and rubber tires when really the issue is the configuration of the network and the frequency of the service. And that, again, is Brian Taylor, a professor of urban planning and public policy at UCLA and director of UCLA's Institute of Transportation Studies. So how can St. Louis get the network at once and serve the people who truly need public transit? Well, joining us now with some insight into the questions we should be asking and what to think about next is Kate Lowe. She's an associate professor and the director of undergraduate studies in urban planning and policy at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Kate, Welcome. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So, Kate, I understand that as a transit scholar, you tend to be hesitant about rail expansions. Generally speaking, why is that? Well, often, as Brian Taylor noted, we look at rail because it's flashy and tangible. And many rail expansions have tended to benefit white affluent commuters and come with opportunity costs for investing in bus networks. This proposal that's happening in St. Louis may be a little different. As I understand, there would be several majority black communities that would benefit, but we've seen many times rail pursued at the expense of frequent speedy bus service that brings tangible benefits to riders. Hmm. So there's not an infinite pool of money. We can't just say, why don't we have both? Well, um, both sounds great, Um, but it also sounds a little out of alignment with the federal and local landscape. Um, One reason capital projects are often pursued um, rather than investing in operations, which would fund more operators, is because federal rules actually make it really hard to use federal dollars for operations. So it's not easy for Metro to repurpose certain pots of money to increase operator salaries, for example, that would help with uh, bus operator retention. That said, some places have invested creatively in bus service to make it speedy and equivalent to light rail using federal dollars. I'm Um, I'm curious why the federal government would say you can't use these dollars for things like that when things like having good operators are essential to having a good service. Is there a philosophical reason for that? Um, Some of this dates back to Reagan-era policies and unionization um, and also a sense. So that's one issue is that in many metros, transit operators are unionized. So in the global, well, not global, in the national political sphere, there wasn't always an appetite for subsidizing unionized industries. Mm. The other is this idea of decentered uh, responsibility for making management choices. I think some would hold the belief that uh, local operators should have a balanced budget. Um, But during COVID, there were some exceptions and federal dollars were allowable to provide much needed operations relief. Hmm. So there are some reasons that light rail becomes maybe more attractive to politicians than for the population that truly needs it. I understand you've looked at census data on work trip ridership when it comes to commuting on rail versus commuting on bus. What did you learn about that? So I looked at the St. Louis city boundaries as well as the St. Louis metro. Um, And this would probably align with with what many people have observed which is uh, bus commuters are majority people of color, um, and 
the census data doesn't break out by uh, groups in this particular data set, so it doesn't break out Black versus Latinx versus Asian. But within the metro area, we actually see a lot of white rail commuters. In fact, within the metro boundary, 61% of rail commuters are identified as white and 40% people of color. Um, there's rounding error accounting for that extra 1%. Mm. Now, as you mentioned, I mean, you took the time to look at this route that we're talking about here today in, in St. Louis. We appreciate that extra homework you've done in addition to <laughs> just your expertise in this area. Um, this proposed route would go through some majority black neighborhoods and serve those neighborhoods in particular. Could that change the light rail numbers um, based on what you see currently? Potentially. I, that was why I was really interested in this project, is that even though light rail is not always the most cost-effective option, I see cost-effectiveness arguments used more often when a project would benefit black communities. So I don't think that the transit agency should suddenly turn away from light rail when it's been serving white commuters. Um, a lot will happen depend on what happens in those served communities. It's an exciting opportunity for investment, but also risk gentrification. I understand there's a a large development. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is coming in. That could be an opportunity with the light rail for investment, but without a holistic set of policies, there could be gentrification. So that careful balance needs attention. And I would say the residents of St. Louis Place and surrounding communities, as well as current bus riders, really need to have a conversation of what capital investments make sense. Not a binary of take it or leave it, but do you want investment throughout the network or this light rail line? We do need to take a quick break here, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with Kate. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. We're discussing the North-South light rail expansion now being talked about in St. Louis all over again. This would be a big change for the city. Could be a good change in some ways, but there's also some drawbacks that could come with it. And Kate is here to help us sort of tease all that out. Kate, you have said that right-of-way is one of the biggest factors in improving things for transit users. How so? Well, when a bus or rail vehicle has to compete with cars to move forward, it goes much more slowly. And we've seen some uh, rail investment streetcars where there's not a separate lane. And that really slows down transit and takes away a lot of the advantages of rail. So sometimes bus has its own right-of-way, sometimes in bus rapid transit. So that's one way of improving transit without steel wheels. And you were talking about cost effectiveness. I imagine doing bus rapid transit where the bus does have its own dedicated lane, that could be a lot cheaper than rail. 
that can bring some cost-effectiveness benefits. One tricky thing that's happened in the U.S. context is we haven't seen a lot of bus rapid transit uh, done well. So in the implementation process, for example, in Boston, there was a bus rapid transit project that was going to have its own lane. And then that lane became also a turn lane and a parking lane. So it lost a lot of the advantage. So doing bus rapid transit well can be very tricky. Um, so that's one of the downsides of, of BRT. Um, and a lot of light rail proponents emphasize its association with economic development. Hmm. It's interesting with the idea of bus rapid transit. Um, St. Louis is a city that has a ton of streets that have multiple lanes that are just wide open. There might be some short periods of the day in which there's cars in, in, in these lanes. But in many cases, these streets are much bigger than they need to be. Would that make us potentially a better candidate to have these dedicated right of lanes than a city like Boston that's pretty congested? Um, that's been a really interesting opportunity, whether it's a bus with rubber we- wheels or a light rail with its own dedicated lane. I think there's a lot of opportunity if there's excess roadway capacity to really make some dramatic transit improvements. And that's why I think a conversation should be not just light rail or give up the pursuit of federal dollars, but what would a really integrated, broad-based bus rapid transit network look like? And is that what bus riders and North St. Louis prioritize? I'm going to go to the phone lines. Beverly is calling from University City. Uh, Beverly, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Beverly? Yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you for joining us. What's your perspective on this issue about Metrolink expansion? I think you should definitely expand Metrolink. However, my my objection to Metrolink is you need an automobile to get to the Metrolink station. Mm-hmm. So the the buses just don't work well. Um, and I don't know. I'm not an expert in this area, but instead of running such long distances and such uh, long time intervals between bus stops. Could you not run smaller around and around and around and then connect to other areas? So, Beverly, you're saying if we had a more effective bus system, if you were able to get a bus in a timely way, that's what it would take for you to ride Metrolink. Well, when I worked downtown, I did drive to a Metrolink, and I always took Metrolink downtown. I did that for over three years. And continually, even if I was going shopping, I would still use Metrolink if I was going downtown. Mm-hmm. But that, for the last two years, has not been an option. But yes, I, even before then, I was taking Metrolink to another position I had in the county, and they canceled the bus service. So I couldn't get from Metrolink then to my home because you canceled the bus service that got me to my home. Beverly, thank you for sharing that perspective. And Kate, this sounds like exactly what you're talking about here. It doesn't matter how good the light rail line is in a sprawling city like St. Louis if we don't have reliable bus service to get people that final mile or final three to four miles, such the case may be. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important for local leaders to think carefully about what to do with local funds. The discussion documents around the Metrolink study um, suggests that about half the funding would come from the federal government. So what, what would bring the most benefit 
to those who need it the most and, and the city and region. Um, but also, if we want transit to be effective, we have to think land use and automobiles. Those are challenging questions, but those are part of the big picture of maximizing transit's benefits. You know, it's interesting. You had mentioned this idea of how light rail spurs development. And we heard from some people with some thoughts on this um, on our St. Louis on the Air Facebook, as well as on Twitter. That's at STL on Air. Dennis writes, I've been involved directly or indirectly in all the studies for this going back to 2008 when it was first studied. I'm really conflicted. If the goal is to move people from point A to point B, light rail doesn't necessarily make sense. If the goal is to spur development, it does. Kate, is that something that should be part of the conversation. Absolutely. We can't think of transit outside of that context. I have some apprehension, however, because I've seen rail used as a flashy solution as part of gentrification. So um, with, with the transit agency and arm of the economic development entity, it would have to be very carefully done to make sure that the economic development benefits existing residents um, and brings benefits to black and brown residents and current bus riders, not just landholders and developers. Let's go back to the phone lines. William is calling from the city central west end. Uh, William, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to, to be on the air. Well, thank you for joining us. We're, we're thrilled to hear from you as well. Wonderful. Um, really, I wanted to call in. I am a young professional living here in St. Louis, born and raised. Um, I'm strongly in favor of a, a north-south Metrolink line. I, I think it's really the only way um, to remain or to keep St. Louis as like a relevant metropolitan area, you know, not just amongst cities of, of comparable size, but even larger. Um, we're not talking about like a loop <laughs> trolley line we're talking about a, <laughs> thank you for clarifying rail. that yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean we're talking about a light rail line that would positively impact residents throughout the city and i'm i'm really excited about that prospect so william you see this as an investment in making st louis the kind of city that people are going to want to move to that we, we can maybe stop some of the population loss and and get younger people excited about living here oh absolutely i i think um it, it's going to not only spur positive development um, but I think it's an opportunity, too, to start a conversation about um, enacting policies that not only protect neighborhoods that are, you know, here and, and residents living there, but also finding a way to welcome new people um, into areas that are, are served by this line. William, thank you for sharing that perspective. Um, Kate, it's interesting thinking about this, and St. Louis is doing a very good job lately about talking about things like equity, and I know, I know that issue is important in your work and in your research, but as you point out, the devil is often in the details. What does St. Louis need to think about in order to do this right versus just to pay lip service to the things that uh, that sound buzzy right now? Um, well, if that... I, I'm, I'm glad there's some attention to it. I know there's a, a mayor that's bringing that to the fore. Um, but I would say meaningful participation, it, process matters. If we don't change processes, we're not going to change outcomes. But, but I also see rail getting this persistent buzz in uh, kind of uh, city competition. I've seen that in Orlando where there was a lot of support for rail. Um, so sometimes I wonder why 
what's wrong with the bus? We know in the U.S. it's not done well. So I would, I would hate to see a focus on light rail come at the expense of really improving bus service. So I, I think it's great um, to think about how can we attract and grow residential ba- uh, bases. Um, but uh, there is a lot of flash and buzz, as Brian Taylor's clips reflected around light rail. So I, I think there has to be attention uh, to housing costs, belonging, um, and uh, participation that uh, has meaningful impact. If we don't, as I said, we need different processes around this um, and, and dialogue. Not People are going to say yes to a light rail or nothing, but what is the whole range of possibilities that could enhance livability equitably? So I'm glad you mentioned the idea of the whole range of possibilities because uh, we talked to a local resident who had just kind of a a thought on this issue of something that he wanted to be part of the conversation here. This is Greg Christian, and he's interested in the merits of something called trackless trams. They make them in China and just kind of, you know, kind of did some back-of-the-envelope math on, you know, the cost of that versus uh, Metrolink. Uh, they, they proposed much like north south expansion, and we could get it. I think it was like a, a tenth of the cost per mile. Mm-hmm. So, like, those transit dollars can go a lot farther. And I was really, I mean, really intrigued by the by the trams because you almost get that Metrolink experience, the train experience. They say they've got like uh, the article articles I read about them have uh, they've got multiple like tires so it's not like a and, and they sit lower to the ground smoother ride kind of like a train and uh they're electric so they're quiet and you know uh and, and um they can recharge at every station or whatever so um they're pretty and, and they and they're automated so they they do have drivers for emergency situations but the things pretty much drive themselves so that is St. Louis resident Greg Christian, and he admits that his calculations here are, are kind of casual ones. This is just something that he's noodling around with. Is the idea, Kate Lowe, of something like a trackless tram, is that going to overtake light rail and technology in the next decade in a way that it would be silly to, to put rail lines in the ground? Do, do we know anything about whether, you know, is technology innovating on the sort of quasi-light rail front? Well, there's a lot of different technologies embedded in that. One is the idea of automated transit, and that is in discussion. The downside of automated transit is sometimes people feel more comfortable if there's an operator, uh, just in the sense of uh, a collective experience and someone to go to if there's a problem. Um, So trackless trams aren't very common in the U.S., and sometimes boutique technologies have additional expense. So there's the question of automation. There's a question of power source. So there's a lot of development around uh, alternative power sources for buses. So that's an area that's evolving. And there are rubber-tired, for example, the Orange Line in L.A. has a very high-quality experience. So those are things to weigh, Um, and one of the documents I looked at had a cost of over $900 in year of expenditure dollars for the light rail. So it depends on whether you're looking at current dollars 
or year of expenditure. So there are some big expenses. Um, but I, I would hate for the message to be that North St. Louis isn't worth that investment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's not a simple answer. Um, but we should consider different technologies and options collectively. Yeah, and and it's worth noting, um, speaking of the complications in all this, you know, we've been talking about this $41 million in sales tax funding that the city has just kind of sitting in a pot and growing, going back to this 2017 vote. Um, We talked, our producer talked to a city spokesman, and he said his understanding of this, which tracks if you read the language, this might have to be used for Metrolink expansion. It's not that they can just put this money into getting better buses. So there are a lot of pieces to this puzzle. A lot of complications here. A lot of people who want to do the right thing. Um, Kate, what would be the thing that you would just hope St. Louis takes from this conversation today as we grapple with these really important issues? Uh, That uh, a a new light rail line could be interesting and important, but can't come at the expense of quality bus operations. Well, Kate Lowe, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your perspective. It's been a pleasure. This episode was produced by Evie Hemphill with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.